Well, good morning to you. That's about accurate for 4th of July weekend when everyone's on vacation. Sounds right. Let's try again. Good morning to you. There we go. There we go. Uh, welcome to Liberty Church. Uh, I don't anticipate that we have many brand new guests in the room. This weekend's usually typical and where people uh, go on vacation with family and friends. But if you are a guest, a special welcome to you. And really, for whatever reason uh, you find yourself here, just an honor to have you with us this morning. Uh, if you are new with us or if you've been here before but never filled out one of uh, the cards that we call our high cards, they are located in a seat uh, back pocket close to you. And if you would do us the, pr- uh, the honor of filling that out, Sometime between now and when the offering basket comes by later, just dropping that in there. Uh, that helps us get to know you a little bit, at least get to know that you're here, and help start the process of connecting you to uh, the people and ministries of our church. So uh, that's there for you. Also, under, your, under that uh, seat there will also be a black hardcover Bible. Uh, if you don't own a Bible or if you know someone who doesn't own a Bible, uh, go ahead and take that with you when you leave today. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to, to have that. Uh, and, of course, you're more than welcome to use it. Uh, during our time together this morning. When you came in today past the welcome table, hopefully you got one of uh, these bulletins. Uh, On the inside of that are a few announcements. There's a lot more information available on our website, uh, so I would direct you there as you have opportunity to check uh, all the things that are going on in the life of our church. But just a couple things to highlight this morning. Uh, Next Sunday, which is July 9th, immediately following uh, the worship service that morning, uh, we will be in here for about 30 minutes or so doing one of our two times a year uh, vision and budget meeting. So our fiscal year just ended a couple days ago. Fiscal year 2017 just ended. And yesterday, fiscal year 20, uh, 2018 began. So next Sunday, uh, Dan Kern, who heads up our finance team, uh, will be up here sharing an update about last year's budget and this, new year, uh, this next year's budget. I'll share a little bit about kind of where we anticipate us going this year and how that's reflected in the budget. Uh, And if you are a member or regular attender of this church, if we have your information, you should have gotten from me yesterday an email that actually has the PDF of the budget report in it. Um, So I'd encourage you to look at that sometime this week, uh, think through any questions you might have, and and shoot those back to us. We'll take a vote next Sunday for all those of you who are in covenant members here uh, to approve that budget for for the new year. The other thing I just wanted to mention there uh, is that we have a couple things uh, that exist to help just create opportunities for you to connect over the summer when there's less of a structure and less of a rhythm to, uh, or maybe at least a different rhythm to your life. So maybe you noticed this over the last couple months, but there's been a community bulletin board that's now emerged on the wall in between the two bathrooms, if you go back into this other wing. Uh, On that board, and then as well as digitally in our uh, Liberty Connect website, we have a group called Liberty Link for men and a Liberty Link for women. Uh, In those groups and on that community bulletin board, you will find periodically just opportunities to connect outside the normal rhythms uh, of our church. So, for example, a great one going on right now, um, Holly Mawinney is gathering uh, moms and kids, usually younger kids, for playgroup times this summer. So there's a schedule of that posted on the community bulletin board uh, as well as on the Liberty Link groups. Uh, If you would like to put something on there, uh, or or just even to check it out if you don't know how to access that, uh, email Karen. Uh, Her email address is on the back of your bulletin. We'll get you all set up with all the details you'd need. Uh, And that just provides a way for us to connect uh, in different ways over the course of especially these these summer months. Uh, If you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 16 is where we're going to be this morning in our teaching time. And if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, page 11 uh, is where you will find Genesis 16. Uh, One year ago today, it was July 2nd of 2016, 
uh, a man named Elie Wiesel passed away. And many of you will probably be familiar with him in one way or another. Uh, in case you haven't ever heard of him, Elie Wiesel is a Jewish Holocaust survivor whose parents and sister were killed in, in concentration camps back in the 1940s. After surviving the Holocaust, uh, he became a professor, uh, he became a published author, and he became a political activist. And then in 1986, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his humanitarian work. He, he really devoted the rest of his life to different causes of peace, which was really powerful, especially given that he had personally experienced uh, some of the worst contempt against other human beings that, that recent history has, has known. Because of the vividness of its descriptions, I still very much remember one of his most famous books, and maybe some of you read it in school like I did. It was called Night. Anybody else read Night by Elie Wiesel? A few, few hands in the room. Um, what I didn't remember until recently de delving back into his life and his biography a little bit is how complicated his faith in God was given what he had experienced in his life. In one passage from Night, which didn't stand out to me when I read it as an eighth grader, but really stood out to me when I reread it again, he says this, Blessed be God's name. Why? Why would I bless him? Every fiber in me rebelled. Because he caused thousands of children to burn in mass graves? Because he kept six crematoria working day and night, including Sabbath and the holy days? Because in his great might, he had created Auschwitz and Birkenau and Buna and so many other factories of death? How could I say to him, blessed be thou, almighty master of the universe, who chose us among all nations to be tortured day and night, to watch as our fathers, our mothers, our brothers end up in the furnaces? Praise thy holy name for having chosen us to be slaughtered on thine altar. And then in another one of his writings, he says this, anything you want to say about God, you better make sure you can say in front of a pit of burning babies. And yet, if you read more of the things that, that Elie Wiesel wrote, he's the same man who would later say, when he was asked about this, no, I've not lost faith in God. I have moments of anger and moments of protest, but sometimes I've been closer to him for that reason. So on this one-year anniversary of his death, I really just wanted to pay tribute to Elie Wiesel this morning because certainly his life is an example. It's an extreme one. But it's an example of just how difficult and just how complicated faith becomes in the greatest moments of distress in our lives. In our distress, even if it's not ever as extreme as something like Elie Wiesel experienced, in our distress, there's really no way to avoid asking the question, at least internally, if not externally, where is God? Where is God in the midst of this? Doesn't God care about this? Doesn't God know about what's going on? Doesn't God see? And in Genesis chapter 16, we have really, I think, in Scripture, one of our clearest answers to that question. And this is a really important distinction. Not an answer to the why question. And not resolution to all of the hardship and all of the suffering, but an answer to where God is in the midst of it. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love, Genesis chapter 16, start in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. 
Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that, I, that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring that they will, so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God who is there, God who is loving and almighty, we pray this morning that you would shine within our hearts the true light of knowing you and that you would open the eyes of our minds that we may comprehend the message of your word. Do that in us by the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Genesis 16, if you're familiar with it really at all, you're probably familiar with it for the first six verses of it. Uh, about Sarah giving her maid, Hagar, to Abraham as a wife. But when you really step back and you view this chapter as a whole, it becomes this contrast of two different responses. On the one hand, how do we think and speak and act when we're convinced that God doesn't see? And then on the other hand, how do we think and speak and act when we become assured that God does see? And so we'll spend the rest of our time this morning considering that contrast. First, let's talk about this. When God seemingly doesn't see, how are we, how are we prone to think and, and speak and respond when we're convinced that God doesn't see? In, uh, in some recent weeks, if any of you who are um, Hulu subscribers may have seen a TV series uh, based on a Margaret Atwood novel called The Handmaid's Tale. Anyone seen that or at least seen the massive amount of advertisements there have been for that? They've been all over the place. Uh, this story has really brought back into kind of the limelight of pop culture this practice of surrogate motherhood. In the novel and in the TV series, uh, this cult theocratic group takes over the United States and then they use surrogate motherhood as really a way, they use even texts like Genesis 16, as a way to oppress women, 
uh, to rob women of their rights, to say basically to women, all you're good for is, is bearing children. We have to remember, without really condemning the practice or affirming the practice, we have to remember that whatever we encounter in Scripture has a historical context. And in the ancient Near East, what we know from history is that surrogate motherhood was a very common and respectable practice. We have historical records from uh, the third millennial, millennium through the first millennium B.C., really from all over the ancient Near East, all the way from Babylon to Egypt, that attest to this practice of surrogate motherhood. And because childlessness was such a huge deal in that day, this was a really normal way of addressing what would have been a major issue, a major problem for a couple. But that's actually exactly why it's so wrong for Sarah and for Abraham. Because Abraham is not a normal ancient Near Eastern man. And Sarah is not a normal ancient Near Eastern woman. They are recipients, and we read about this just one chapter earlier. They are recipients of a unilateral, unconditional covenant from God that he is going to give them descendants without number and a place. So the real problem with Sarah's plan here is that by doing what is normal, even what is respectable in her cultural context, she's turning away from God's promises and she's taking matters into her own hands. And so she says there in verse 2, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And it's understandable, right? It's understandable that she would conclude that. She's somewhere at this point around 75 years old. They've been in the land of Canaan for about 10 years, and nothing has happened yet. So you and I, as we read this so many years later, so, so removed from this cultural context, we should have compassion on Sarah when we read about this. She's an aging, childless wife in a society where most of her worth would be determined by the number of children she has, and she doesn't have any. But at the same time, Sarah has seen way too much to think that God has really left her by herself, and that, she, that God has somehow left matters in, in her hands. And God has already, as we've traced this story, he's ruled out other efforts that Abraham and Sarah have taken on to try to solve their childlessness by themselves. In the earliest days of their sojourning, it seemed like they really had identified their nephew Lot, that he was going to become the heir of this family. But God ruled that out, and Lot went his own way. And then Abraham, in chapter 15, had apparently identified another servant from his household, this man named Eliezer of Damascus, and he was going to be the heir. But God ruled that out. God said directly to him, no, your very own son, one that comes from your own body, he will be your heir. So Abraham and Sarah, they keep proposing their own solutions. And what we come to find is that none of them are God's solution. And so in this episode, Sarah thinks and speaks and acts as if the God who had called them in Ur and led them all the way through Haran and into Canaan and down into Egypt and all the chaos that that was when they were in Egypt and then back into the promised land has now somehow, for some reason, just abandoned them to themselves. And God is really almost like in a deistic kind of way, just kind of set things in motion and then step back for them to deal with things on their own. The theological term for what Sarah is doing here is called synergism. Synergism. And synergism is attempting to independently advance the purposes of God by taking matters into your own hands. And it is really exactly what results when you and I become convinced that God doesn't see us. Right? You and I, different specifics, but you and I do the same thing. And much of the synergism that 
that, that comes in our lives, that comes in our day and age, comes as really self-initiated efforts to alleviate pain and suffering in our lives. It's one of the places that synergism shows itself most often regardless of cultural context. Right? When we suffer, we quickly abandon perspective. And we become convinced in those moments, or we're at least largely prone to become convinced in those moments, that God no longer sees us. And so then we spend a ton of time, uh, a ton of energy, a ton of money, trying to somehow create a world to create some kind of environment that is free of pain and suffering. The most uh, outlandish example that I've ever encountered myself was a uh, special guest instructor who came and taught at Shea's workplace when we lived in Kansas City. So this is probably six or seven years ago now. Uh, this professional came, taught a seminar at Shea's workplace, and the whole presentation was about what's called the law of attraction. It, in essence, boils down to this. If you think positively, positive things will happen to you. The positive energy that your positive thoughts create will draw more positive things, will attract more positive things into your life. And this instructor was so convinced of that principle and applied it so pervasively to life that it got to this point, that she had a dear friend who was in the hospital suffering from cancer and the treatments of cancer, and she would not open her friend's emails giving updates about how that was going. And the way that she rationalized that was because to open those emails, to read those emails, would lead her into a negative way of thinking. And that negativity that that created would just create more negative things happening. It would make actually things worse for the world and for her friend. And so really the loving thing she had convinced herself, the loving thing to do was to actually keep that email unread and just keep thinking positive thoughts kind of generally in her direction while she was in the hospital. Okay, that is absurd, it's absurd. It, it is, it, it, it's funny and it's like tragic at the same time, right? Like it's just so ridiculous that we can get to the point where we convince ourselves that that's what love looks like. And I genuinely hope that, that this woman has better friends than she was to that woman in that moment. Because God forbid she, I don't know, get old and die someday as humans tend to do. On her deathbed, I hope she has friends that call her or that read her emails, or that even come next to her bedside when she's in the midst of that. Okay, even when it's not that extreme. This is what we're inclined to do as human beings, to create a life for ourselves that is as comfortable and free of suffering as possible. And then when we do suffer anyway, we get shell-shocked, we get cynical, we get discouraged. For the people of God, there is almost always synergism in that. And that's because we, we try to, we convince ourselves that we are somehow able to advance the kingdom of God, to usher in the kingdom of God in a way that isn't actually part of God's plan. Right? God's plan is that the fullness of the kingdom of God comes when? When Jesus comes, right? When Jesus comes again. And so until then, we've got incredibly important, incredibly worthwhile efforts to combat injustice in the world, to be people of mercy and love and grace in the world, to, to seek the flourishing of the place that God has put us. All of that is, is important. All of that is worthwhile. Just as long as we don't convince ourselves that we will, by our own efforts, be the ones to usher in the kingdom of God before Jesus comes back. And even though we would never orchestrate it this way, and though you should never orchestrate it this way, God's plan, God's kingdom advances through suffering. It just does, and it always has. 
You can't find an era of the church or of the history of the people of God where, where one of the primary ways that the kingdom of God is advancing, where the gospel is advancing, is through the suffering of his people. And so retrospectively, as we look at Sarah's life and Abraham's life here in Genesis, we can see that God is very much in the midst of this and advancing his purposes. And some of that, some of his advancing his purposes, is going to come through Sarah and Abraham's patient suffering. It's going to come through their patient suffering, their sorrow of being childless, and this long delay of waiting for their son to be born, even though God's promised it many years earlier. But Sarah, just like us, got tired of suffering. She got tired of being patient. So she took matters into her own hands. And what we see here in this text are some of the ripple effects of that. Genesis 16 is an illustration of the reality that you and I, we compound our sufferings when we become convinced that God doesn't see. We compound our sufferings when we become convinced God doesn't see. So in Genesis 16, there's a breakdown of Sarah and Hagar's relationship. I think about this. Hagar must have been a favored servant before all of this. Sarah would have had choices. When Abraham rescued Lot, we read about that a couple chapters ago, he takes 318 of his male servants with him. And they were only those who were born in his house. They were only the most reliable of his servants. So it would stand to reason that there would be a lot of female servants that were part of this household of childbearing age who could have then been the mother of Abraham's son. And so Hagar must have stood out for some reason. Sarah must have trusted her and thought her to be a good choice for a surrogate mother for this couple. But look what happens to them, and look what happens to their relationship through this. Hagar gets pregnant by Abraham, and as would be very common in that cultural moment, she develops a superiority complex over people like Sarah who can't have children. She looks with contempt on Sarah. And so Sarah then, in response, deals harshly with her. And the word in the original language there for deals harshly, that's the same word that's later going to be used by Moses in Exodus chapter 1 to describe the way God's people are treated by Pharaoh. So think about that. Hagar is this favored servant put forward as the one to be the surrogate mother for this couple, and then a few weeks, I don't know, later, she's treated the same way Pharaoh treats God's people in Egypt. There's also a breakdown here between Sarah and Abraham's relationship. It's not a coincidence if when you heard this, it sounded eerily similar to Genesis chapter 3 and, the, and what plays out between Adam and Eve in the fall. Right? Think about the similarities. She doesn't trust that God has her best interest at heart, so she goes her own way. He listens to her and goes along with it. It doesn't go well. So she blame shifts with a bunch of misdirected anger. All the while, he passively abdicates, right? Abraham here doesn't step in when Sarah comes up with this ill-advised plan. And then when it goes badly, because he doesn't want to deal with the conflict, he just tells Sarah, well, she's your servant. Do what you want with her. And he allows Sarah to deal harshly with her and to drive away this woman who is no longer just Sarah's servant. She's now become Abraham's wife and the mother of his child, So this is, again, another moment that is not particularly strong for Abraham. We saw a lot of that when he was in Egypt. Then he has a stretch where he's seemingly very faithful in most aspects of his life. This is not a strong moment for Abraham. 
And there is a particular kind of damage. We see it here, and we see it in the parallels that this has to Genesis chapter 3. There's a particular kind of damage that comes when men are passive. And, and that's not at all to say that women shouldn't be active and assertive. They absolutely should. And it's not to say that men shouldn't invite and pursue and defer to women in many instances. They should do that. But real pursuit and real deference, even in the moments when that's the right move, still requires a very active posture, not a passive one. And so what we see in some of these accounts is that passivity in men kills. It kills. And men, what I would say to you through this is that we are called to be active protectors and contributors in our homes, in the church, and in the world. And for any of you that have a family, you and I are those who give an account to God for the thriving of our wives and of our children. So when we passively abdicate in those places where we are given great responsibility, it creates a vacuum that wreaks unbelievable havoc and unbelievable damage. And I think with all integrity that we could attribute a ton of the societal problems that we see in our day to several generations of passive abdication among a tragically high number of men. Epidemics that exist in our society like fatherlessness and divorce and, and all these other things. I know there's more than one variable to all of that. But a huge component of it is the same thing that you see in Abraham in Genesis 16. Passive abdication when you're called to be responsible in a key moment. And so by the end of verse 6, this has just become a total disaster. Sarah has lost a trusted servant. Hagar has lost her home. And Abraham has lost a wife and a child. We compound our suffering when we become convinced that God doesn't see. But the good news is, is that that does not change in any way the nature of God. God does See, and he has seen all of this play out. And he mercifully pursues, even into that compounded suffering, the mess of their own creation. And so second, let's talk about that. How differently do we respond when we become assured that God does see? Verse 7 is a huge transition point in Genesis chapter 16. Hagar flees. But who's right there as she flees? The angel of the Lord pursues her and finds her as if she were ever really lost at all. And the first thing this messenger from God says, do you notice that? The first thing this messenger from God says is her name. And that might not seem like a big deal when we just read it in passing until you realize that up to this point, only the narrator has used Hagar's name. Abraham and Sarah have not used her name. They've just referred to her as my servant or your servant. God sees. And so the first thing this angel does is to rehumanize Hagar in her suffering. And calling her by name in this moment is like re-imparting the dignity and worth that she is due as an image bearer of God. So she's been treated in this account like an expendable object. But she's known and she's seen by God. And she's known and she's seen by God to the degree that in all of their research, and all the research that we have access to today, scholars have only ever found one instance of a woman being called by name from a deity directly, and it's Hagar in Genesis chapter 16. 
So think about that. All the history of the ancient Near East, there's one instance in literature that we have that scholars have been able to find of a woman being directly addressed by name from a deity, and it's Hagar. She's an Egyptian servant. She's not, she's not going to be the mother of Abraham's covenant son. By many accounts, as she appears here, she's a minor part of the Genesis account. But she's this one woman directly addressed by name in all that ancient Near Eastern literature. Moreover, down in verse 13, Hagar is the only person, male or female, in all of the Old Testament to confer a name upon God. Right? She gives God a name. And if you're newer to Christianity, if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, that's never the way that it works. That's never the way that it happens in Scripture. Very rarely is that the case. It's almost always God revealing his name to people. This is even before the most famous one. The most famous one comes in the book of Exodus where Moses is in front of that bush that is burning but not consumed, and God reveals himself to be the great I Am, Yahweh. Here, Hagar confers a name upon God. And the name is so spot on that there's no qualifier or even any kind of question raised about it at all. The angel of the Lord, the narrator, nobody questions it. It's as if they're affirming, yeah, that's exactly who God is, Hagar. He is the God who sees. But not just in some kind of generic sense. He is the God who sees you. God is not calloused or cold toward Hagar's affliction. God has heard. And therefore, her son will be named Ishmael. And And the name Ishmael means God hears. And God has seen, and therefore the place at which this is playing out, the well is called Bir Lahai Roy, meaning the well of the living one who sees me. So God does see, and Hagar is assured of it in this moment. How does that change her perspective? How does that change Hagar's perspective? It enables her to go back into the suffering and the hardship. It gives her an assurance that will sustain her through the hard days that are to come. This is really important. As we read, this is not an immediate or a complete alleviation of her suffering. And as we've seen throughout this series, when God comes and speaks to people like this, he promises in those moments both great reward and great affliction, great tribulation. So on the reward side, Hagar is going to give birth to Ishmael, and he's going to multiply her offspring so that they also cannot be numbered. And we find out later in the book of Genesis that Ishmael has a huge family and a huge line of descendants. At the very same time, the angel is telling her this, he also tells her to return and to submit to Sarah. And what he's saying there is, in other words, Hagar, I know you've been treated poorly. You've got to go back and trade your contempt and return and become that humble and faithful servant you once were, even though Sarah's treated you harshly. And there's a foreshadowing that's happening here in the book of Genesis to the times when Abraham's descendants are going to have to submit to masters that deal with them harshly. Because anybody reading this over the first couple thousand years that it was written would be immediately drawn to in this moment that God's people had to suffer and were dealt harshly with by unjust masters like Pharaoh in Egypt and like the leaders of Assyria and Babylon and the Roman Empire. The angel also tells Hagar here that her son's life is going to be hard. 
that Ishmael is going to be against everybody and everybody's going to be against him. And this won't be the last time that Hagar and Ishmael find themselves in a situation like this. Not many years after this account, Hagar and a teenage Ishmael will again be sent away by Sarah and Abraham into the wilderness. And they get within probably a few hours of dying from thirst when again God shows up, sees them, mercifully intervenes, leads them to yet another well. So God sees, but that does not mean complete alleviation from our suffering. What it means is that we are known and we are cared for and we are pursued in our suffering. And it means that we can enter back into suffering and hardship knowing that God is truly still there, right in the midst of it, seeing and hearing us. And it means that we need not synergistically take matters into our own hands and act as if he is not. In my humble opinion, the second half of Genesis chapter 16 is incredibly underrated and unknown. Right? Most of us who know Genesis 16 at all know the first six verses. But the second half is just so rich. This is the story of the world and the story of your life and my life. You are created in the image of God, which means from the moment that you exist, you are seen by the one who creates everything. But then from our earliest parents, we are those who don't really believe that God sees us. We don't trust him in that, so we take things into our own hands. That's our sin. That's our rebellion, and we compound our suffering through it. But as definitive proof that God sees us, a distant son of Abraham named Jesus Christ comes. And here is God in the flesh, not only seeing, but entering into the world. And there is no more definitive declaration that God is the God who sees than the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Right? This, if there ever was something, this is God seeing us, pursuing us, redeeming and rescuing us. And in Jesus, in his life, in his death, and his resurrection, you and I, like Hagar, can say, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. So when you suffer in this life, know for certain in those moments that God sees your affliction, that nothing in all of creation is hidden from his sight, and that God has not shied away, but most definitively in Jesus has entered into your affliction, whatever that might be. And when other people suffer in this life, be those who in the name of Jesus and by the power of his spirit see one another. Be those who see one another. Don't avoid afflicted people as we are prone to do. Come alongside afflicted people in their affliction. Pursue them the same way that God mercifully pursues you. You don't have to have answers for why they are suffering. Actually, it's often when we attempt answers that we end up patronizing or invalidating the pain and the sorrows that they are feeling in that moment. But one of the most healing, one of the most humanizing, one of the most restorative things that you and I can do in moments like these is to let others know that they are seen in their affliction, that they're not forgotten, that they're not expendable. Right? Name them the way that the angel of the Lord names Hagar, re-impart the dignity and worth that they have as an image bearer of God. So today and each day, may you lift your eyes 
and may you see the God who sees you. You need not compound your suffering by convincing yourself otherwise, by convincing yourself that he is not there and he does not see. Instead, perceive the God who is there and then live your lives as those who are seen by God. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. You are the God of seeing, God, and we have hope and we have assurance in this world that enables us to endure what this world will look like and what this life will look like because of that. We confess, God, that we are those who don't believe you at times, that we think that you do not see and we think that it's left up to us to take matters into our own hands. Forgive us for that. And as we compound our own suffering by doing that, God, forgive us for, for continuing to run away from you in those moments. Would you break through the pain and suffering when we face it? Would you remind us that you do see, that we are known to you, that our affliction is known to you, and that you're not cold or callous toward it? And I pray that having assurance that you do see, we would be able to enter back into that suffering and hardship, not making it easier circumstantially, but that it would truly give us faith and hope and peace knowing that you see and you're a God who loves us and is with us in the midst of it. And as we come to this table, we are reminded of the great worth, Jesus, of your entering into affliction, entering into this world, the brokenness of it, to redeem us from it. And so we sit in this time, and as we sit in this time between what you've already accomplished and what is not yet complete, help us to look backward, to have definitive and expectant confidence because of what you've done, May it give us endurance. May it sustain us until the day that you come again. Let me pray this all in your name. Amen.